church family, that is, of course, not the end of the story, is it? (laughs) It's not the end with a soldier's declaration and a crucified and dead Jesus. There is more, much, much more that comes after that. In fact, what comes after is what I would invite you to consider with me for just a few moments. The Gospel writer Luke tells us that after Jesus was crucified, his body had been taken down from the cross and he had been placed in a borrowed tomb on Friday night. And after that, on Sunday morning, the third day, some women followers of Jesus came to the tomb to complete the burial process. Angels meet them there, declare that Jesus is alive, risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. They run back to the disciples who were in the city and they tell them what they've seen and heard. And and Luke says that when the women told them, it seemed to the disciples like it was nonsense and they did not believe the women. And then continuing the story from there in John's Gospel, where your Bible is now open, we begin reading at verse 19. John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails... And, the, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands. And put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we'll stop right there. This is the opening record of what happened after Jesus' death on the cross for sinners. A death planned and purposed by God before the world even came into being. His solution for our sin problem, his answer to the separation that sin created between himself and us, was for his son to pay that debt, our sin debt himself, and to pay for it fully with his death upon the cross. Proof that the debt had been paid and that God's justice has been satisfied, that sin and death are are not more powerful than Jesus, the proof of that is that Jesus rises from the dead. The resurrection guarantees our redemption. Amen and amen. And so what happens after Jesus dies 
makes everything else possible. Forgiveness of sin, the power to live well for God now, and life eternal with the Lord when this life is done. The resurrection makes our redemption possible. And what takes place in that locked room on that Sunday evening following Jesus, I believe captures the essential features of our redemption story and compresses all of it down into one amazing moment. So let's return to that room together and think about what we see and what we hear as John relates it to us. Let's think about what happens after. Can you picture the scene for Jesus' disciples on that Sunday night? Your best friend. In fact, that's not really even, that's not even accurate. Uh, the, the one who you have chosen to give your life and your future to has just been murdered. Executed, in fact, in the most cruel manner possible. You might have helped him escape, but you ran instead. When they arrested him in the garden, you ran. And you are angry at yourself for doing that. Your sense of shame is overwhelming. And the depth of your sorrow that Jesus is in fact dead. Now it can't be measured. Your whole world has been shattered. It has gone black. The last two and a half days have been the worst days of your whole life. Can you picture the scene? The room is dimly lit with a few oil lamps. The door is securely locked. In fact, you checked it yourself. You sit in a corner and you review for the hundredth time the injustices and the betrayal and your own role or maybe lack of a role in that horrible death of your best friend. And now adding to your confusion is word that Jesus' body is, is gone. The tomb where Jesus has been placed is empty. Your thoughts crash into one another because none of it makes any sense at all. And you are scared. I mean, you are really afraid. In fact, that's the first thing that happens after Jesus' death. Fear. It grips you. It squeezes you like a vice. In fact, it's even hard for you to breathe on this night. People know who you are. They know that you have followed Jesus everywhere for the last three and a half years. You were inseparable. You're one of his disciples. And you, in their eyes, in the corrupt eyes of the religious leaders, you are an accomplice to everything that Jesus did. Every crime, which is what they called all that Jesus did, all of his crimes are your crimes. Your companions who are with you, who feel what you are feeling and thinking what you are thinking, are asking, what now? How are we going to get out of this? Do we make a run for it? Do we stay undercover? What do we do? The religious leaders are looking for us. Your dreams have been shattered. Verse 19 makes it clear that the disciples are certain that the same religious leaders who sought Jesus' death will soon be hunting for them. And they are afraid, hiding behind a locked door. Now, fear is something that we all know at least a little bit about, right? We're all familiar with fear. A popular comedian says this, 
All of us are born with a set of instinctive fears. Fear of falling, fear of the dark, fear of lobsters, fear of falling into a pit of lobsters in the dark, the fear of speaking before the Rotary Club, and worst of all, the fear of reading the words, some assembly required. (laughs) And we laugh. We laugh even though these might actually be some of our fears. And yet the fear that the followers of Jesus are experiencing on this Sunday night after his death, well, this is an altogether different kind of fear. This is the fear that comes when you know that your death is close at hand. And so the disciples of Jesus hide. They're ashamed. They're despairing. They're confused. Confused despite the fact that Jesus had for the past year been telling them exactly what would happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. But they didn't understand. Or or maybe more to the point, they had refused to accept such a future for Jesus or for themselves. After all, Jesus was the Messiah. He's the Son of God. How could such terrible things happen to him? Fear has taken hold of Jesus' followers, and it has a firm grip on all of them after his death. And now his body's been stolen. By whom and for what possible reason? No one can fathom. But that too perhaps will be used against them by the religious leaders, accusing them of trying to keep hope in Jesus alive by stealing his body. John says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, they were afraid. However, However, all of that changes in one incredible, incomprehensible instant with what John writes at the end of verse 19. Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, church family, do you suppose there has ever been another sentence written that has more completely understated the moment than this particular sentence? The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Glad? Really glad? What about astonished? or surprised, or astounded, or amazed, or dumbfounded, or flabbergasted, or overwhelmed, or incredulous, or blown away, and glad, (laughs) right? He enters the room without going through the door. Apparently, his resurrection body, though it's a real body, it's a material body, but it can pass through a door or a room. He doesn't need that. One moment he's not there, the next moment he's standing in their midst. And his first words to his followers reveals that he is fully aware of exactly where they're at. They're on the precipice of fear. They're about to be swallowed up by it. And he says in what I imagine to be the most calming and soothing voice ever spoken, he says, peace 
peace be with you. The very opposite of fear is what Jesus brings with his resurrection. He brings peace. He had told them on the eve of the cross in the upper room when he shared that meal with them in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not be troubled, neither be afraid. And he then showed them his hands and his side. He wants them to know, I mean really know that it is him. It's not a phantom, it's not a spirit, it is really really him. He knows that fear breathes the air of doubt and and uncertainty. And so he invites the disciples to come in close, examine the wounds from his crucifixion that remain as a permanent feature of Jesus' person in his resurrected body. It has been said that that the only man-made things that will be in heaven are the scars of Jesus. And that's really true, isn't it? It blows me away, perhaps you too, to think that one day you and I who are in Jesus by faith will see the very same scars that the disciples are looking upon on this night. We will see the wounds of our redemption and we will be glad. After the resurrection, Jesus brings peace and he brings proof. And as well, he brings forgiveness. After the resurrection, there is forgiveness. Remember again that mixed in with the fear that the disciples experienced on this night, there were also feelings of of shame and great self-disappointment. To a man, all of them on Thursday night at that Passover meal had pledged to Jesus their devotion and their loyalty, saying along with Peter that they were prepared to die with Jesus if that should be required. It wasn't just Peter who made that statement. They all made that statement. But then in the hour of of, of Jesus' greatest need, they had all run. They had all ducked into the olive trees and into the darkness, leaving Jesus in the custody of the temple guards with the cross as the eventual outcome of that. Now, though, risen, standing before them, there is not one hint from Jesus of condemnation or rebuke for what they had done. No, where were you guys when I needed you? No, I told you. Didn't I tell you you would cut and run? None of that. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The Lord Jesus brings forgiveness with his resurrection, and he brings it from the very start. And we see that in his repeating of the words, Peace be with you. Those words aren't just meant to comfort a fear-filled heart. They are words designed to convey that the relationship between Jesus and them is in a good place. There is peace because there's forgiveness. Forgiveness for the past failures that were born of sin or pride or misplaced confidence. We also see his forgiveness expressed by the assignment that he immediately gives to them on this night. I am sending you as the Father sent me. He immediately indicates his determination to entrust to them the same assignment that God gave him. 
I wish for you to carry my work of making God known to a world that doesn't know him yet. That's what the Father gave me to do. I am giving that job to you. That doesn't happen unless the relationship between Jesus and his followers is free and unencumbered. What relief it must have been for those disciples. Their unfaithfulness has not resulted in abandonment or separation or I give up on you or judgment, but rather a recommissioning. That's real forgiveness. After the cross is fear, but after the resurrection, peace, proof, forgiveness, and faith. Faith naturally follows when anyone truly accepts the truth that Jesus is not dead, but alive. Now, we might have suspected that the disciples' faith had been restored when we read in verse 20 that they were glad when they saw Jesus and knew that he really was him. But it's in verse 22 that our suspicions are confirmed concerning a restored faith. Because we read that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is only given by God to those who are all in with regards to the person of Jesus, right? I mean, that's the only way that you get the Holy Spirit is if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose again victorious over sin, death, and the grave. Only then do you receive the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gifts that to his disciples. Doubt and faith can't live in the same, same heart. So once the disciples have believed, the Spirit of God is given. And he's pleased to give them divine power, divine power in the person of the Holy Spirit. While the Holy Spirit will be dramatically presented to the church 50 days from this moment on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Jesus here, in response to his disciples' faith, places his spirit initially in them here so that they can do the work that he died to make possible. And then Jesus assures them that their faith, joined to the power of the Spirit of God, will give them incredible authority. Verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now, we say, well, wait a minute. No one, not even the disciples, can forgive the sins of another person. Only God can do that, right? Only God can do that. Jesus isn't saying that the disciples can forgive sin. What he's saying is the disciples now have the gospel message. What is the gospel message? The gospel message is this. Who Jesus is, what he has done, appropriated into my life by grace through faith. They now have that. Who Jesus is, the Son of God, what he has done, died in the sinner's place, was buried, rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave, They have that truth. They share that truth. It's appropriate into the life of a person by grace, not good works, through faith, through trust, and eternal life is given as the gift. They have the gospel. And so when Jesus, what Jesus is really saying is that any faith follower can boldly declare with certainty Any sinner's sin has been forgiven if that sinner has put their faith in who? Jesus Christ. 
On the flip side of it, we can also boldly declare to any sinner that their sins are not forgiven if they refuse to respond to Jesus, right? And that's what Jesus is saying here. Faith receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit supplies the authority to be Jesus' ambassadors to a dying world. Into that room entered someone that they thought they would never see again. Fear disappeared. Peace sprang fresh from the darkness of their hearts. Forgiveness was was given and received, and their faith was restored. And these transformed disciples waste no time in telling others about the risen Jesus. Who do they tell first? Well, they tell Thomas, don't they? They search out Thomas, one of their number who had not been there on that that first night, resurrection night. He was not there. They relate all that they have experienced, but Thomas cannot bring himself to believe it. It's not surprising. He had been as zealous for Jesus as any of the other disciples had been. But like the rest, his worst fears had been realized. The crucifixion had crushed his faith. The phrase, once burned, twice shy, comes to my mind. He once believed, but his belief has been crucified. That's what he thinks. So we can understand why he would be slow to believe again. He makes an outrageous demand. Unless I see his hands and his side and put my finger in those wounds and my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is only prepared to lay aside his devastated faith in the risen Jesus if he is touchable. Eight days later, he gets his wish. The disciples are together again, and this time Thomas is with them. They are still unsure what the future holds, so the door is locked, but that doesn't stop Jesus. He enters their midst once again. He joins them, and incredibly, without condemning or scolding or calling him Doubting Thomas, that's a name we've given him, invented for him. Jesus doesn't say that. He simply invites Thomas to come close and run out all of his questions and recover his faith. Put your finger here, Thomas, and put your hand in my side, Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You know, it's interesting. Thomas apparently does none of the things he said he needed to do. He just sees Jesus and he cries out, my Lord and my God. Jesus never invites faith in himself, but that he does so with gentleness, with kindness, with understanding, realizing we need the evidence. And Thomas finds his faith once again. It's what happens after the resurrection. But Jesus does say to Thomas in this incredible faith moment of his life, he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have what? Believed. And that brings us to the final afterthought on your note page there. 2,000 years separated from the glorious resurrection of Jesus, we read here of his unbreakable promise of a blessing to all who will believe in him, though they have not seen him as Thomas and the others did. And it's a blessing that comes in the form of 
sins forgiven, Holy Spirit power supplied, and the assurance of salvation in a home with God forever. The things that Nick was talking about in his testimony. The hope. The hope. When you know that you know that you know Jesus, the risen Jesus, then you live with love, with power, you serve with, with devotion because you know He's alive. And there is a blessing. And it's the blessing of an inexpressible joy that belongs to you. And no one and nothing in the world and nothing in the world unseen can ever take that from you when you know that you know that you know that Jesus is alive. Amen? That's an inexpressible joy. Now, Peter was, was in that locked room on Resurrection Sunday evening, and he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, many years after, but thinking perhaps of the words that Jesus spoke to Thomas, when he writes these words, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is not some false cooked up hope that we cling to because we don't know how to cope with this world we live in. This is real. This is real. It's a living hope. And Peter writes about that as well. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, this day, is all about what happens after the resurrection, right? That's what this day is all about. After the crucifixion, fear, desperation, hopelessness. But after the resurrection, peace, proof, forgiveness, faith, and inexpressible joy. Do you have that today? Do you have that today? If you don't have that today, if you came through these doors without that inexpressible joy of knowing the risen Lord Jesus, you can walk out those doors today with that joy in your heart. Jesus rose from the dead. And He rose for you. Do you believe that? If that is a first time expression of faith for you, don't leave today without stopping a friend in this room or, or coming on and chasing me down. We've got material we can share with you. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to live in this inexpressible joy of the risen Savior. Let's pray together, church family. Oh, it has been so good to be together on this special day, Lord Jesus, to reflect and remember this moment that you shared with the disciples on resurrection evening. We're thankful for all that comes after your resurrection. We praise you. We glorify you. We delight with inexpressible joy in what we have in you. 
I pray for the one who, or more than one perhaps, who came today and has been wrestling with you and who you really are, what you're about, what your claims are, and if they're real. Holy Spirit, speak into the heart of that one. Make your resurrection real real today. May this be a spiritual birthday for someone in our room this morning. The songwriter said it well when he wrote, There's a peace I've come to know, though my heart and flesh may fail. There's an anchor for my soul. I say it is well. Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He is risen from the dead. And I will rise when he calls my name. Amen Amen. and amen.